0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 19th, 2021. Fridays are good days, I think, for people who work in organizations because they speak of the impending weekend when you're not in your organization anymore and you're free of work. Fridays, for me, are actually the beginning of real work. I get most of my real work done at the weekend. Um, We've talked a lot about organizations and fear and what it's like to work in a large organization in today's world, particularly the world of COVID, a world perhaps increasingly defined by anxiety and mental illness. Uh, We did a show a few months ago with my old friend John Hagel, a futurist on the psychology of fear. Um, John has a new book out, The Journey Beyond Fear, and it's a book about liberating his readers and particularly corporate executives and workers within organizations of fear. Uh, We've also done a number of shows about organizations. Uh, I had the corporate trainer uh, Nancy Giordano on the show recently uh, talking about the ethics of companies. Uh, She has a new book out, Leadering, Wake, Wonder, Navigate, Connect, Contribute, Be Audacious and Thrive. And it's a book about how to be a leader uh, in the contemporary organization uh, in uh, in our organizational world today we're bringing those two things together with an interesting new book out it's called unfair transform your organization to create breakthrough performance and employee well-being and it's a book about teaching executives how to liberate uh, their employees of fear and i have one of the co-authors of the book Gorav. Um, and I, Gaurav, I'm going to, uh, I hope I'm not going to mangle your name here. Uh, Gaurav Batnagar, uh, the co-author of Unfair. Uh, Gaurav, congratulations on the book. Our uh, uh, happy Friday. Our Fridays good for you. Do you look forward to the weekend?
1: I absolutely do. Uh, but I look forward to weekdays as well, Andrew. So to me, you know, being an entrepreneur means you work seven days a week.
0: Well, you have that cheerfulness of the entrepreneur, Gaurav. What about people in organizations? Do you think a lot of them look forward a bit too much to the weekend?
1: Unfortunately, I think they do, because I think uh, often organizations have become a chore. And in fact, I don't know, but in the US, there's this great resignation going on, which also kind of reinforces that, that people don't seem to be happy uh, with, with what they've been doing.
0: So as I said, uh, your new book, Unfair, the, the uh, Transform Your Organization to Create Breakthrough Performance and Employee Well-Being, uh, it's actually out next week. It's a McGraw-Hill book. Um, congratulations, of course, on, on finishing the book and, and publishing it next week. Is it a, it, it, have I described it fairly, Gaurav? Is it a book, a, a sort of a handbook for executives or managers to figure out how to make their employees less fearful?
1: Uh, not quite um, it, it is it is a book for leaders and for us leaders is leadership is not a role but it but an attitude and the book is not about making people less fearful the book is about reframing people's relationship with fear in order to find learning and growth in it and it's a very fundamental shift in fact You'll notice "unfair" is not a word in the English language, and we had to almost invent a word in order to communicate this idea, uh, because often yeah,
0: that's interesting. Because I do want to talk to you about language. Um, mm-hmm. The book, uh, as I said, is called "Unfair," and I looked it up online on the internet, which is supposed to know everything. And I didn't get a lot from "unfair." All I got was the opposite of fear, absence of fear, fear, fearlessness. Why do you think there isn't a word for unfair, Gaurav?
1: Uh, Because because unfair, the way we think about it as a verb, is reframing your relationship to fear. And often people think of fear and fear less. Um, And quite honestly, I don't know about you, but at least in my experience, uh, I think to be human is to have fear. And, and the workplace and, and the world we live in today is a really fearful place. So it's it, fearless does not quite define what we are looking to try and make happen. You know, what we are trying to help people understand is there's a story we have around fear. And the story is the challenge. The story is also the opportunity. And unfair is about that story rather than about the emotion itself.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you you say fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is a very different kind of conversation. But we had the Cambridge University Professor of Politics on the show. I've had him a few times, actually, David Ronson, an old friend of mine. He's obsessed with Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century political philosopher who built his whole Leviathan, perhaps the most influential of all modern books about politics, around the idea of fear. Suggesting that we are naturally fearful, and that's what drives us to create social contracts. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think there's some truth? Are you a Hobbesian, Gora? I'm not sure if I'm a Hobbesian, but I do agree that that
1: uh, fear, the fear narrative, can be quite influential in politics, and it can be used to the great detriment of of society. But but again, it's again it's sort of all about the narrative that we have related to fear. And one thing I, I believe is that as human beings, we have two superpowers. One is the superpower of imagination, and the other is a superpower of language. And unfortunately, like any superpower, it, it can be used for good or bad. And our language and our imagination not only uh, describe what it is what is today, but actually help us create the future. And repetition in language Often can create narratives, which you know, in your example, can be used for detriment, but but also can be used to reframe and be used for the betterment of organizations as well as societies.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, Gaurav, about um, our superpower of language. And when I was reading, uh, uh, unfair. I thought of George Orwell's great essay, Politics in the English Language, which speaks of the importance of the accuracy of words. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think that the misuse, the abuse of language is one of the foundations of the corruption of society? Uh,
1: I think I'll have to agree with that. I actually think That language is, is, as I said, is a superpower that can be used to corrupt or to actually enhance. And unfortunately, uh, we have created a society where we tend to use language to reinforce reactiveness to fear, which actually leads to a very uh, judgmental, blame, victim-oriented context in which everyone is not taking ownership and is deflecting and... And 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 that's what's creating so much division today.
0: Your book, uh, as I said, uh, is uh, is is called "Unfear," and the word itself is essentially invented by you. It's of course borrowed from the word "fear" itself, and there's mm-hmm. lots of literature on fear. There's lots of definitions in dictionaries. Uh, it has a very substantial Wikipedia page. Fear talks about it being an intensely unpleasant emotion. How would you define fear, Gora?
1: To me, fear is an emotion. I'm not sure I define you know the moment you call it unpleasant, you have created a again, you have imagined that it's something bad. And the moment you imagine it is bad, then they, exactly what happens, what you put up in terms of Wikipedia and stuff, we start thinking about fear is something that we need to react against. It's something that we need to protect against, uh, which is true when it's related to our physical survival, but not always true when it's related to emotional fear.
0: But we For don't example, like, I mean, no one enjoys the the experience of feeling fear, do they? I mm-hmm. think that's the point of the uh, of, of the Wikipedia entry to just suggest it's not an emotion we choose we would rather live without fear is that fair
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's a fair statement i would i would suggest you know from the from the indian context fear is one of the eight uh, what are called rasas or the juices of life it's one of the eight emotions that make the whole human complex a fulfilling complex so when you look at it from that perspective it's a different way of looking at it, but I, I, I completely understand that it's not something that we would naturally argue that is something that we want to experience.
0: Uh, and the Wikipedia entry goes on um, to, to, to suggest that fear is closely related to the emotion anxiety. It mm-hmm. seems, as I said at the beginning, we live particularly in the age of COVID, in an anxious age. What I had to do, I went through some headlines this morning. Um, being single in the pandemic makes us even more anxious. Uh, Outdoor exercise is supposed to lessen anxiety, Um, how different types of anxiety can affect your life. Uh, Some have even, and I even had a page on some of the best books about anxiety in 2021. Uh, Gaurav, are we living in the age of anxiety and do organizations and corporate life Do they mitigate anxiety or do they bring it out?
1: So I absolutely agree. We live in the age of of anxiety. And I think currently the way organizations operate, they accentuate it.
0: Explain why. It's interesting because I was thinking about your book and I don't work in an organization. I never have. No organization would ever have me. (laughs) And I would never have an organization. Doesn't. Don't organizations, by definition, attract anxious people because they're very conservative options. You're guaranteed a wage, you exist within a hierarchy, the rules are relatively set. Doesn't seem to me as if you're a particularly organizational guy.'re you're, you're a startup guy, you're a, you, you have your own company and uh, with your fellow author, uh, Mark Minukas, you run it. Um, don't organizations attract anxious people by definition? So
1: let's let let me begin a little bit. If we step back and we think about what organize, what is the purpose of organizations, right? Um, we are essentially when we are talking about organizations, we are talking about community, and the intention of community was to get together for productive action that that enhances the community and enhances people served by the community. That is the original intent of organizations. Unfortunately that original intent of organization is not always well lived i worked in an organ i worked in organizations for um about 20 years before i uh, branched off on my own in fact i used to work for a strategy consulting firm called mckinsey and company which
0: yeah, you know of them.
1: traditionally attracted insecure overachievers to your point but but i don't think it has to be the case i i actually think that if organizations truly understood what it is all about that organizations can be a place where you you create productive action and create well-being in a way that brings out the potential of people rather than through safety suppresses the potential of people and that's what the point of the book is
0: yeah that exactly is the point of the book um what about the startup world wouldn't you suggest that real meaning and, and we've had many authors on the show particularly from silicon valley suggesting that organizations simply don't make you happy they're not designed to um, reduce anxiety or make our lives more colorful or exciting and you're simply better off working for yourself
1: hi. Uh, again i work for myself and i love doing it so i would not say that there's That is not the case, but I would also push on. I actually think startups are tremendously anxious places as well.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Although they seem to attract people who are gamblers and, and willing to take a bet on themselves and their instincts more than organizations.
1: Yeah, but Andrew, again, the fundamental question that comes up is, what does success mean for people, right? What does success mean for organizations? What does success mean for startups? And if success is narrowly defined as your quarterly profits, you're absolutely right. It leads to anxiety, suppression of your expression, and all of those things. But if it is about contribution and actually aligning the interests of society, aligning the interests of profitability, and aligning the interests of the people who work in these organizations, you create a whole different dynamic than the one that typically is understood in organizations or in a startup even.
0: Right. And and in this sense, uh, Gaurav, you're very much um, uh, echoing uh, Nancy Giordano's argument in in leadering about the moral responsibility of leaders and i know you touch on that let's take a break Gorab, and then let's get back and we we'll talk a little bit more about your your very interesting new book we'll be back in a couple of seconds sure hi everyone andrew here again i'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keen on show i certainly hope you're enjoying it but i wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen on show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast. You can do this, um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional, uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh all the podcasts together you can go to my lit Hub page um, in their podcast section which is dedicated to all the interviews uh, if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening um if you follow me on twitter at aj keen you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lithub is. And on their Lithub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lithub YouTube page. So Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to keenan We are back uh, in conversation uh, with one of the co-authors of a new book, "Unfair," Gaurav Batnaga. Uh, Gurav, uh, recently we had. Um, the, uh, the Harvard um, business professor, Julie Batellana, on the show, she's a theorist about the redistribution of power. She has a very interesting new book out, Power for All, how it really works and why it's everyone's business. It's a book about reinventing the corporation to restructure power, to create a kind of P2P distributed power infrastructure. What's the relationship, do you think, between power hierarchies and fear? Do you think that if we can undermine power within organizations, we can also challenge all this fear that is holding people back?
1: Yeah, so that's a wonderful question. And so, I, I mean, there's an interesting question, which is what is the role of hierarchy in organizations? And and I think what has happened in organizations is that hierarchies have now started serving the power structure rather than the purpose which is to create efficiency and effectiveness of decision making so one of the archetypes we we talk about uh, fear archetype we talk about in the book is this archetype of being a controller and all that is about is about how do i maintain control over the people that i have and how do i maintain my fiefdom and when that happens then you create dysfunction in fear but there is a there is a positive to hierarchy as well. And so it's a subtlety of how do you use hierarchy to make decision-making effective without it becoming a self-serving thing, which is all about feeding people's egos.
0: How do we do that? Do do, do the great leaders, to to borrow some language from Nancy Giordano, unleader themselves, not appear to be leaders? Give the people that work for them the impression that they're the ones making the decision, that they're the ones with power.
1: So that's a great question. I believe that uh, leaders who unlead themselves, to use that word, uh, are truly leaders who tend to become adaptive. And and what do I mean by that? One of the things that uh, hierarchical leaders do is they create certainty and they become very top down and very directive. Uh, adaptive leaders know the power of uncertainty and they're comfortable with ambiguity, which pushes their teams to think and to learn and to be uncertain in a way that allows them to be more creative. And then the other thing they do is they inspire, which is they don't say, I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. What they say is, I am right and you are right. But because of the trust that I've built in you, in this situation, because we both cannot uh, have to do different things. Let me let me invite you to follow me. Even though I know that what you are suggesting could also have possibilities.
0: I think you're going to love. I, I I don't think you probably had a chance to hear the Batalana interview or perhaps even read her book. But you're very much in sync with her, and of course she's in sync with the zeitgeist at the moment. Uh, our world of Black Lives Matter, of um, Me Too movement of all sorts of social conversations about doing away with all the the injustices, particularly based on race and gender and sex. Is this essential for creating an atmosphere of unfair, both in society and the corporation, challenging directly all these social ills that have existed seemingly forever?
1: So I think questioning and getting curious about these social social issues is really important. But my sense is because of fear, organizations actually are very uncomfortable being able to engage in these conversations. And both sides of the uh, are uncomfortable, right? The reason why diversity, equity, and inclusion is such a difficult conversation in organizations is because people who've been historically in positions of power are deeply uncomfortable and nervous about saying something which is wrong or not, I don't know how to engage in the conversation. And those people who have been disempowered are always worried about what if they say something that leads to a landmine and negates their ability to progress in the organization. So for us, one of the big conversations that we engage in in the book is how do you create the right context, the unfair context? So people can actually have those difficult conversations. Uh, we, I agree that we need to have these conversations, but how do you create the context? Is is a conversation that often is not had?
0: Greg, do You have models of leaders who are confronting unfair effectively. In Silicon Valley, we we only hear about Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. I'm not sure they're very good figures in in in, as paradigms of of leaders who confront unfair, are there particular, you're an old McKinsey guy, are there, do you have corporate leaders who are models for this, paradigms for this new age?
1: I I do believe there are, there are a few who I would uh, talk about in the book, in the eighth chapter, there's a whole case study, which is from a manufacturing site, which you would think is not a great example, but there was a great leader there called Greg Flum, who now teaches at the University of Michigan, um, who, who used vulnerability and his, his, uh, you know, his challenges with, with diabetes as a way of drawing people in and, and actually creating a system where everyone wanted to contribute, not from a place of fear, but from a place of really feeling that they collectively own the entire uh, the site. Another person who I would talk about is from Europe. His name is Jos Lammers, who till recently used to be the CEO of a company called Unilabs, who again in he will and he wrote the foreword for the book, and he will tell you that he is not completely there, but but has the ability and is really work, has been working on how do you create a system that allows for the best of the organization to come forth. Uh
0: Gaurav. Uh, earlier this year, I had my uh, old friend um, Julia Hobsbound on the show. She's an organizational theorist. She has a term, I think mean, she's made it her own, the notion of social health. She has a new book out coming out next year. i think going to get her back on the show, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. Do you believe in Hobbsbound's notion of social health? And do you think that a post-COVID age where we can get out of the office, perhaps work from home, is this going to help in our uh, in our way of fighting fear of, of realizing unfair?
1: So that's a really interesting question. I I'm, though, though I have to say I, I need to study social health as a concept a little more.
0: Well you'll have uh, to uh, you'll have to uh, you'll have to follow Julia um, uh, she's written a lot she has a, an old book out on social health uh, from last year so she yeah. needs to read her book
1: Yeah but but to the question of whether working from home uh, allows to unfair to me flexibility is a core concept within unfair but I also do believe that human beings are not meant to work Sitting in front of a computer screen 24/7 and having engagement with other human beings 24/7 on a two-dimensional aspect. And what I'm finding is that as the COVID, uh, as the pandemic has eased off a little, more and more organizations are yearning to bring teams together in in situations where they can engage with each other and then go back. So to me, there's going to be a hybrid model which allows human connection and allows for people to have the flexibility and that is going to be potentially more of the unfair model versus completely being in your home environment and not engaging with your co-workers in a physical way where you can actually understand the nonverbal verbal cues and, and these informal interactions that are important for people to connect with each other.
0: Well, there's a lot of wisdom in unfair. Transform your organisation to create breakthrough performance and employee well-being. It's out next week. It's by Gaurav uh, Naga and his partner Mark uh, Minukas. At uh, you're both, um, you both, uh, Gaurav, you're, you're you're both at um, you're you're founders of a, uh, a group called Co-Creation Partners. Um, coming back to language, you've invented your own word, unfair for this book, what does the word co-creation mean? I've always been a bit um, suspicious of, of that word. I I looked it up on Wikipedia, of course, and it does have an entry in contrast to unfair. But what is co-creation all about and how does co-creation help create unfair?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. In fact, this is a, this is uh, one of the core tenets on which the organization is based. And, And so historically, consulting firms have been based in, we go in, we figure out what's wrong with the organization, and we give the organization the answer, and we tell them to fix it. And having worked in that environment for 11 years, what I realized was human beings don't like to be told that they're wrong. And human beings often will just nod their heads and say, yes, if you're telling me, I'll do it. But often a lot of those recommendations sit on, or sit on the shelf and gather dust or they're done with resistance. Co-creation is a fundamental principle for us means we engage with you as human beings and we engage with you as equals. And we discover together and learn from each other what the opportunities in the organization are. And we co-create solutions that have ownership and buy-in within the organization. So it's it's an equal dynamic, which is core to unfair, and it's a dynamic that allows people to step in even when there's discomfort, rather than step away. Uh,
0: One of the individuals who I never expected to pop up in a book like unfair, Gorav, is the English Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton. Um, But you have a footnote to his book Orthodoxy. Um, Are you suggesting that? the way to happiness is to challenge orthodoxy of one kind or another, cultural, um, organizational.
1: I absolutely do, which is the whole point of imagination. And the idea is that you're not just actors in your life, you can observe yourself acting and therefore you're directors in your life. And as a director, you should be challenging and questioning everything and thinking about what is needed to be effective rather than just assume that something is right. In fact, the reason why he, the, the, the gentleman Jess Chesterton is mentioned there is because my favorite quote from him is angels fly because they take themselves lightly. And that's really important because if you take yourself too seriously, then you get so stuck in your self-righteousness that you really can't be effective.
0: This is all fascinating stuff, I think, particularly on a, on a, on a Friday when uh, we're questioning our lives. Uh, it's an important and interesting new book for people who want to liberate themselves or rethink their experience with the organization. Uh, Gaurav Bat, uh, Batnaga and Mark Minoukas' new book, Unfair, it's out next week. Congratulations, uh, Gaurav, on the book. Uh, in addition to your new book, I know you're talking to me from Stanford, Connecticut. In these mm-hmm. strange times, in these fearful times, for better or worse, in our age of anxiety, in addition to your new book and perhaps uh, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, what else should people be reading?
1: So I have two book recommendations. One, in uh, both of these are old books, but they have been really influential in my life. One is David Brooks' *The Second Mountain*, mm-hmm. which is a really powerful book for people who are who who've been who've achieved a lot in their first career. Yeah, and are now asking what is meaning all about, and the other um, one. There's, a,
0: there's an element of spirituality in that book, um, which uh, Brooks is is quite confessional. It's an interesting book, I agree.
1: Sure, and the other one, which is a book called Unboss. Uh,
0: another is, un-book. Yeah, another un-book, uh, which is really interesting. Unfair, because, unboss.
1: Yeah, and this is this is probably closer to the one which you were talking about about leadership. Where you have to unleader yourself, this is a book which is all about how do you how do you really engage from a whole different model of or a whole different paradigm of of societal as well as organizational leadership, which I find really fascinating.
0: Another of my words that I'm suspicious of paradigm, but that's perhaps for another show. Maybe Gaurav, I need to <laughs> rename my show, The Unkeen on. Uh, Anyway, Gaurav um, uh, Batnaga, the author uh, of uh, Unfair. Thank you again for appearing on uh, Keen On. Uh, Thank you for making sense of language and meaning in in, in the contemporary uh, corporation and organizations. Congratulations on the book and we'll have you back on again to talk more language, economics and meaning. Thank you so much, Gaurav.
1: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.